0: It's an awesome thing to be a part of a church that is ultimately a sending church. You know, if this is your first time to E B Free, or this is your 500th time to E B Free, we're simply a group of people that are passionate about following Jesus as disciples, connecting as family, and going out into the world as missionaries. And so we gather together to, to pursue those things, and we think ultimately all three of those things are wrapped up in the person of Jesus, You know, the reason we choose the life of discipleship, the reason we choose the life of family, the reason we choose the life of mission is because we think it is the best possible life that can be lived. But it's not just us. These actually come from the words of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is gathering a group of folks around himself. And in John 10.10, he says this. He says, I have come that my people may have life and have it to the full. Uh, another translation says, my purpose is to give my people a rich and satisfying life. Uh, the Amplified Bible uh, says, I came that they may have and enjoy life. Uh, they wouldn't have it in scarcity, but they'd have life in abundance to the full until it overflows. And in the message translation, it simply says, I came that they may have real life, eternal life, more and a better life than they ever could have dreamed of. You see, when we gather together and we pursue the person of Jesus, we think that we stumble upon the most satisfying life. And if you're here tonight looking for life, we think that you're going to stumble upon Jesus. Because the two are deeply, deeply connected. And so when we gather here, we're pursuing that. But we come together because we know that the life of discipleship, the life of pursuing this satisfying life isn't always easy. It's not just rainbows and roses and unicorns. In fact, Jesus himself says, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will face persecutions but it's worth it. Every step along the way is worth it. And so we know that as we come, it it can be painful in discipleship precisely because we are reorienting our values. We're restructuring our priorities. And anytime we meddle with our priorities and our values, there's something difficult about it. There's something painful, but worth it about it. It's one of the reasons why EB Free, uh, the staff pastors, are doing a series on generosity. Because we know that for most of us, generosity, it's something that we aspire to, but not something that comes naturally to us. If we actually want to become a people that are generous, there's going to be some pain involved. There's going to be some discomfort involved because it takes a rearranging of our priorities and our values. A few weeks ago, Aaron Kirk talked about being generous with our time, that our time ultimately isn't ours, it's, it's God's time that has been given to us to serve God and to serve people. Last week, Eddie Park talked about being generous with our talents, that our talents have been given to us for the purpose of learning to serve and to love others. And tonight we're talking about being generous in grace. If you've been around the church for a while, grace is a word that can be used often. It can be used with frequency, but as much as we use it, we want to make sure that we have the right paradigm and perspective regarding what is real grace. What is true grace? And is God a graceful God? When you open to one of Paul's letters in Ephesians, he tends to think that God is a deeply gracious God. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, says, in him... In him being Jesus. In Jesus, we have redemption. We have redemption through his blood, through the cross, for the forgiveness of sins. Not in the scarcity of God's grace, but in the riches of God's grace. Not that he is sprinkled on us, but that he has lavished on us. If God has lavished his grace on us, it would do us well to pursue the idea of what is grace. What does it mean for our life that God has extended grace towards us? Uh, but before we go any further, we just wanna, we wanna pause for a moment and pray. Because we know that when we open God's word, God's word is actually alive. That it's dynamic, that it's active. One author will say that God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. Able to divide soul from spirit and bone from marrow. So we know that as we open God's word this evening, we have the opportunity, the possibility, and the potential to be changed through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can walk out of here differently than the way that we came in. And that's what we desire to do this evening. Can we pray together? Father, we pause for a moment recognizing that when we open your word, we're we're opening something that's powerful and active and dynamic. And ultimately, Father, we want to be shaped tonight. We want to be changed tonight. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you into this room to do what only you can do, which is to change us and to shape us. It's in the name that we pray. Amen. Oh, amen. Oh, oh, hey, eb free. Uh, just to go back, uh, uh, I want to kind of go back to this four minutes of family question. What is your favorite uh, season? And I want to take, just take a quick survey. How many of you folks enjoy fall the most? Fall is your favorite season because of the Starbucks lattes that come with the season. There's a couple of you. Uh, how about you folks that think the wintertime is the best season? season. You're Christmas fiends. I know why you like winter. You love Christmas. How about spring? How many of you are spring? There's quite a few of you in here. Uh, How many of you are summer folks? Summer's just your favorite. Listen, if you're raising your hand right now, you're living in the right state. If you raise your hand for any of the other three, I'm sorry, but you're living in the wrong state. You know, I grew up in a state that actually had four seasons. <laughs> Oklahoma has fall, winter, spring, and summer. California just tends to be this endless summer. And, and I have to admit, I love summer. I, I love the beach. I love the warm weather. I'm so excited for June gloom to pass so that it can just be a blue sky and sunshine. But one of the things, surprisingly, that I like most about summer is that once you make it to June, the rest of the year is awesome. Right, like after January, once you get into February, there's two or three months there that are really painful. They're really difficult. They're dark. They're cold. They're lonely. Are you guys feeling me? Like it's a rough space. But once you make it to June, once you make it to June, the rest of the year is awesome. You have three months of summer in which you go to the beach you enjoy longer days, you enjoy the sunshine. And then once you turn the corner, especially in California, because summer can last all the way through October and November, you end up in October, we get to celebrate the Halloween season. Halloween's one of my favorite seasons. And then you move into Thanksgiving, and then you move into Christmas. Like you constantly have the holiday season. And I absolutely love the holiday season. However, I have to admit, uh, there's one holiday that I'm not a fan of. It's my birthday. Is anybody here just not a birthday person? Like, you don't like your birthday to be celebrated? Okay, we're rare. How many of you in here love your birthday? Okay, there's quite a few of us. I'm not a birthday person, and I think it goes back to the idea that I'm not really a gifts person. (laughs) I don't like to receive gifts, I don't like to give gifts, so I try and keep people in the dark regarding the date of my birthday as much as possible, which is why I'm not going to share it right now, I'm not going to tell you when my birthday is. But this is a two-edged sword because I go through a lot of pains to be unaware of my own birthday, but then that also makes me deeply unaware of other people's birthdays, And birthdays are interesting because you have this small 24-hour window in which you can make somebody feel special. You have that small 24-hour window to send that text, to write that letter, to give that gift, to send that money. I mean, it is a small window. So um, randomly, my mom will text me. At least it feels random to me. Uh, But what she'll say is, don't forget Today's your sister's birthday. Uh, so then I read it. I realize this isn't random. This is my sister's birthday. So um, I read this text from my mom, and uh, then I, I turn over and I, I text my sister, Hey, sister, happy birthday. And she'll text me back, Did mom text you and tell you to do this? Uh, that's just, it, it's the reputation that I have in my family. I, I'm just not good with birthdays. And I think birthdays are interesting anyway. I mean, oftentimes when we get together to celebrate, we celebrate an achievement. We celebrate a goal. We celebrate a graduation, an anniversary for a wedding, a job promotion. There are all these, these goals or obstacles that we're overcoming. And so we gather together to celebrate. And when we celebrate a birthday, we're just celebrating that you're breathing. <laughs> your, your, your lungs are breathing. Your heart is beating. And so we've decided that we should shower gifts and notes and letters and encouragement on you. It's, it's just the way that works. Like, birthdays are simply a celebration of life, I mean, you could be in the doghouse for 364 days a year, but one day a year, for no reason at all, as soon as you wake up, it's just—it's unmerited, it's undeserved, it's unearned—presence and resources, and love, and time, and attention, and affection from those around you. And for most of us, that lasts about 24 hours. But then there's 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 a there's a group of folks as well. Um, they're pretty clever and they've pretty they're pretty crafty. They've extended their birthday into the birthday week. How many of you know about the birthday week? Yeah, there, there's a few of us that know about the birthday week. This is a big pain for me. I, I'm definitely, if I'm not a birthday person, I'm not a birthday week person. It, it takes my, my, uh, my agony from 24 hours to about 168 hours, uh, which is seven days of birthday. But the thing I love about it, the thing that's redeeming about it is I have six days to redeem myself from the moment I missed their birthday. But these people that extend their birthdays, they're extending the celebration of their life. They're extending this moment in which undeserved, unearned, unworked for grace and gifts and resources and time and attention and affection is simply lavished on them. There is no other celebration in the entire calendar in which we simply celebrate each other for breathing, for our hearts beating. And the celebration comes with all kinds of lavish extensions of resources and gifts. It's the kind of scene that we find in the parable of the lost son. It's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. Uh, Jesus is telling a series of parables speaking about grace and the deep and the abiding generosity and grace. Of the father. And he tells this one story in such a way that he says So uh, there's a father in a certain land who has two sons. And typically, when you read a story, when you're introduced to characters, it's not till later on in the narrative that you learn about their true disposition, that you learn about their true heart. But Jesus paints this broad, wide window into the heart and into the soul of this younger brother from the very beginning. As soon as Jesus introduces the characters, the younger brother speaks up, and he says, Father, I want all of my inheritance right now. Now, if you've done any biblical studies, or even today, if you know there's an inheritance waiting on you, you know that the only way, the only proper way to that inheritance is once the, uh, once the benefactor passes away. That's typically how inheritances work. It, it's how a will works. In fact, you don't disperse the inheritance until that moment. And so when this younger brother comes to the father and says, I want my inheritance, I want your will, I want the part of my estate that's mine right now, the younger brother is simply saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I don't really want to be a part of this anymore. I don't want to be a part of this family. I don't want to be a part of this tribe. I really don't want to be your son anymore. I'd rather just have what's mine. In the first century world, this was a deeply shameful and deeply disgraceful thing to do. In an ideal world, the older brother would step in. The older brother would step in and he would talk down to the younger brother, saying, You're way out of line. The older brother would rebuke the younger brother. If that didn't happen, uh, the father would oftentimes resort to discipline. If you lived in Israel at the time, you would read Torah and you know that there were plenty of ways to discipline a rebellious child, sometimes it was with words. Sometimes it was with a rod. In a worst case scenario, it would be with stones. Uh, What we find in this text is we don't find either. We don't find the older brother coming to the father's aid to, to save face for the father. And we don't find the father disciplining the younger son. Instead, the father just says, okay, I'll do that for you. When rabbis would teach about this kind of event in which, a, uh, in which somebody that had an estate would give the inheritance early, they had rules about it. It was in such a way that the person that received the estate, they would need to stay nearby because the father, the person that originally owned the estate, still had a say over the inheritance, although the son would be holding on to the inheritance. But the text says that the son gives the father a double dig. Not only does the the son say, Father, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now. The next verse says that he gathers everything up that he has quickly after this event and he leaves for a distant land. If you've ever been on a small trip for a week or for a month, you only take a portion of your possessions because you know you're coming back. You take a couple changes of clothes, a couple pairs of shoes here and there, but you leave a majority of your things at home because you're planning on coming back. This son, after receiving this giant inheritance, the text says that he gathers everything up. Everything he has, he puts it all together, leaving, saying, Father, not only do I wish you were dead, I never want to see you again. So the text says that this son who comes from a wealthy family probably wearing great sandals and great linen robes possibly with a caravan of goods and resources and possessions behind him he takes it to a distant land. He takes it to a Gentile territory. And when he gets to this Gentile territory he doesn't just spend his resources. The text says that he squanders his resources. He doesn't squander it on investments. He doesn't squander it on real estate. He doesn't squander it on trying to build a business. The text says that he squanders it on wild living. This younger brother told his father that he wishes he was dead, that he never wants to see him again, gathers all of his possessions and goes on a long-term infinite trip to the Las Vegas Strip to the red light district in Amsterdam. But he does it at precisely the wrong moment as if there were ever a right moment to do it. The text says that after he has spent every single penny that he has, a famine settles on the land. Now, in the land of Costco and Ralphs, uh, we don't really quite understand what a famine would feel like. But just imagine the Great Recession of 2008. The stock market plummeting. People losing their homes. People losing their jobs, overqualified employees applying for underqualified jobs. I mean, the 2008 Great Recession was a disaster. And this is precisely the same moment. This younger son who entered this Gentile territory, a wealthy young man, not only doesn't have a penny to his name, the Great Recession of the Middle East has set in. And so, like any son made you, like any man or woman may do in that kind of situation, he begins to look for a job. So being in this urban setting, he probably goes from business to business, from owner to owner, saying, do you, do you have any work? Do you, do you have anything I can do? And every business, every owner says, I, I don't have anything for you here. So he begins to leave the center area and, and goes to the villages looking for work, looking to be a buyer of goods or a seller of goods or, or a carpenter or a shepherd, anything to pay the bills. And in the villages, he can't find anything. Until so the text says eventually he, he ends up as a field. And, and he hires himself out as a servant. But this field is unlike any field that he's ever seen in his entire life. It's a field filled with Pigs. Now, being from Israel, this young man wouldn't have ever seen pigs. For the Jewish faith and the people of Israel, pigs were ceremonially unclean. They would defile you, your family, and the land that you would live on. And so this young man finds himself in a precarious situation. He finds himself about to hire himself out as a servant for this field of pigs. And the text says that this is the first time that he's actually in need. When he was with his father, every need he had was taken care of. No need for possessions. No need of relationship. No need of food. Everything was taken care of for him. But now he's destitute. He's poverty stricken. And he's feeling for the first time in his life, hunger pains. And so he takes this job and he's probably thinking to himself, how did I end up here? The text says that he's so hungry as he's feeding the pigs, he craves the food that he's feeding the pigs. Now, uh, I have to admit, when I was going to grad school, I I did a season at P.F. Chang's. Uh, who in here is just a big PF Chang's fan? Listen, I'm a, I'm, I'm a huge, I'm a huge PF Chang's fan. I, th- I think it's great food. I can't uh, buy it myself, but when you're a back waiter, uh, you're around it quite a bit. And so, one of my jobs as a back waiter would be to go and to get these dishes, to take them to the back, uh, to clean off all the food, and to put the dishes. In the dishwasher. And you'd be surprised at how many people pay for expensive dishes and only eat about 25% of their plate. It, it's actually pretty phenomenal. Uh, and after a couple of months, I began stumbling upon certain servers that, as they were busting their tables, they'd bring the food back and they'd start eating the food off the plate, which I just thought, man, that's kind of gross. Like, that's kind of interesting. And they'd look at me and say, Austin, one day you're going to cross the line too. And I was like, no, I'm not. Um, I, I have to say this, though. I, I, didn't, I didn't cross the line, but I definitely felt the hunger pains, and I definitely liked B.F. Chang's food. So there were moments when I was tempted, but the only thing keeping me from doing it was a sense of self-respect, <laughs> self-dignity. I, I, I don't know. It, it's just something that, that I felt. When we read this text, we find a kid. We find a young Jewish boy that's in the same situation but his self-respect and his self-dignity are gone he tries to eat the food but instead of himself stopping him it's the other servants and the other folks around him that stop him from eating this food this 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 boy is destitute he's hungry he has lost everything and then he wakes up one morning and thinks what am i doing why am i here Why am I in this place? I'm a hired servant and I'm not even being fed. The servants back at my father's place, not only are they well fed, they have food left over. I think, I can't, no, yeah, I have to go back. I can't, I can't stay here anymore. And so he begins to rehearse this script. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I know I'm no longer worthy to be your son, but if you'll just hire me back as a servant. And and as he begins to rehearse these lines, he becomes more and more comfortable with the idea. And so the boy heads back to his father's place. But he returns in such a way that it is the exact opposite of the way that he left. He left as a young man with sandals on his feet, Fine linen robes on his shoulders. A caravan filled with goods and wealth and possession. And now this boy comes walking back sandalless, Maybe one cloak to cover his entire body. Filthy, dirty, and not a penny to his name. This boy has lost everything. And as he gets closer to the estate, he can... He could see the estate far off in the distance, but he sees what may be a terrifying sight. He sees his father. And he sees his father running at him. And this would have been terrifying for a couple reasons. One, because he's probably never seen his father run. Um, And secondly, because it's shameful for a father to run in the first century. You would have had a long tunic, and in order to run, you would have pulled your tunic up, exposing the shins of your legs which was disgraceful and shameful but here the father is running towards the son and the son begins to practice those lines father i've sinned against heaven i've sinned against you i'm no longer worthy to be your son can i just be a hired servant because he knows that what awaits him at the village is a ceremony but it's not a ceremony of celebration it's a ceremony of shame you see, in the first century, any time you took an inheritance as a Jewish man and you squandered it and you lost it in Gentile territory, if you ever had the nerve to come back, they'd do a ceremony for you. They'd bring you in front of the entire village. They would circle around you and bring a giant ceramic clay pot and they would throw the clay pot down in front of the entire village and they would say, from this moment forward, you are cut off from your people. From that point forward, the man would be abandoned, marginalized, left alone. So the young man knows that this ceremony is coming, and his father running at him is probably the first stage. Maybe he's coming with harsh, disciplinarian words, maybe he's coming with a rod, maybe he's coming with stones. So you can imagine as the father's running towards the son, uh, the the blood in the son's heart begins to boil. He begins to get nervous. And you can imagine that as the father is just within earshot, uh, the son wants to get his message out. And so he yells, Father, I know. I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and I'm not worthy to be your son, but if I can just be a servant. The father doesn't slow down at all but continues to run towards the son and maybe the son continues to yell these words to try and slow his dad down but by the time the dad gets the son the dad embraces the son begins to cover the son in kisses but the, the, the rehearsed phrase is still running through the son's mouth father, father, no, 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 no I've sinned against heaven I've sinned against you I'm no longer worthy to be your son and the father just says stop it and, and he looks at his son, and you can imagine in a scenario like this, there's all kinds of questions that would run through your mind as the father. Where are your shoes? Where, where are your clothes? Where have you been? Where, where's the caravan of, of goods and wealth that I gave you when you left here? Where is everything? And said, the father sees his son, and he speaks to his servants. He says, servants, go get my son a pair of sandals. Bring him the finest robe. Bring him the family ring. And it looks like he's dropped a couple pounds. So kill the fattened calf. In the first century, you always kind of had a fattened calf being prepared and ready for a great celebration. Father says, we're going to kill the fattened calf because my son was lost. But now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive. The text says that a celebration erupts. A celebration erupts over this young man, not because he's turned his life around, he hasn't really done anything yet, he isn't getting better marks. He isn't getting better grades. He isn't more productive now. The father begins to celebrate his young son simply because he's breathing. Simply because his heart is beating and his lungs are working. His youngest son is alive and so he calls the entire family to celebrate, to have a feast, to play music and to dance. The youngest son is done nothing to deserve this it's a sheer act of grace but the parable continues it seems like that might be a fitting ending but what we find is there's still the older son and the older son is obedient he's dutiful he does the right things when he's supposed to do the right things and so as the sun is setting the oldest son begins to come in from the field and he can hear the music he can feel the dancing and he thinks, I love a good party. And so he begins to make his way to his house and he stops one of the servants and says, servant, what's, what's going on? What's the celebration all about? And the servant says, well, your father's killed the fattened calf. Wow. The oldest son thinks this is going to be a great party. He, he's wondering what great political official is in their home. What great rabbi has come by? Who has visited their house that it's worth such a celebration? So the son asks, well, why did we kill the fattened calf? Who's it for? And the servant replies, "Um, it's actually for your brother. He's back. And before, before you get angry, you have to know that your dad is elated. Your dad is so excited that he's home that he's alive. The text says that he is safe and sound. The oldest brother is furious. He's so angry. He's so upset. He makes it into town, but he won't go into the celebration. So his dad comes out and he says, no, come inside. Your brother's inside. He says, absolutely not. He says, no, but he's back. He's been gone possibly for years. He says, I'm not coming in. The text says that the father actually begins to plead with his oldest son. But it's your brother. Old brother says, look, he's not my brother. He's your son. He's your son who wanted you dead, who took your inheritance and squandered it on prostitutes and wild living. And now that he's back, you celebrate him. And you don't just celebrate him. You give him the highest celebration. You give him the fattened calf. When I've been nothing but obedient for years. But you've never even given me and my friends a goat to celebrate with. And the father's heart is crushed. It's broken because for the father, his oldest son misunderstands the father's generosity Misunderstands his grace. He says, Son, I'm always with you. And you're always with me. Forget a portion of the inheritance. Everything that I have is yours. But your brother, who was lost, he's found now. Your brother, who was dead, is now alive. You see, it's interesting. There really are two kinds of people in this story that deeply misrepresent, misunderstand, and underestimate the generosity and the goodness of the father. Uh, the youngest son does everything shameful and disgusting he can do to his father. He says, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now. He squanders it on wild living in Gentile territory, and the youngest son thinks, I'm done. It's over for me. I'm not a son anymore. I've turned my back on my family and on my father if I can just get back as a hired servant. But the youngest son underestimates the goodness and the generosity of his father. See, the youngest son hasn't done anything to earn the gifts and the affection, and the time of his father, except that the son is a son, and the father is a father. And then you have the older son, who's actually in the exact opposite court. He's done everything right. He's been obedient. He's been faithful. He's followed his dad's instructions. But even in the midst of faithfulness, he's underestimated the goodness and the generosity of his father. His father is astounded that the older son doesn't know how generous he is. He says, son, this entire time that you were faithful and obedient, everything that I had was yours. See the older son in the same way. His father saying, "You couldn't have earned this. You couldn't have deserved this. It's just my grace, because you're a son, and I'm your father." It's interesting when we look at the text because it's so easy for us to underestimate the generosity and the goodness of God. It's easy for us to underestimate the grace. God, Scholars call it unmerited favor, undeserved gifts, unearned kindness. And so I would imagine in a room like this, there's probably two kinds of people. Uh, Person number one is you really resonate with the younger son. This is your first time in a local church in a long time. Maybe your boyfriend dragged you here. Maybe your girlfriend dragged you here. Maybe your spouse dragged you here. Maybe you just had a really bad Friday night and you Googled local churches in Fullerton on Saturday and so you're here tonight. I I don't know. But for some of you, you've been away for a long, long time. And even walking into this room, you're thinking, one, I don't deserve anything. I've been off the deep end and I think I'm ready to do my penance. I'm willing to put in the work. I'm willing to put in the time to earn some grace, to earn some favor. And tonight God is telling you, my favor, my grace towards you is free. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. But you get it because you're a son. And I'm your father. Uh, there may be a different crowd in here as well. That you've been in the church for years and years and years. Being faithful. Being faithful being obedient doing the right things when you're supposed to do the right things and all in the midst of it in the midst of the faithfulness and the obedience we we just kind of missed God's grace that everything that he has is for you not because of what you do but because of who you are because you are a son and you are a daughter I think that may be the call for us tonight to come awake and alive to the deep the abiding the generous grace of God his generous unmerited gifts favor, time and resources towards us and so we want to spend a little bit of our evening simply worshiping simply reflecting on the grace of God can we pray together? Father, we pause for a moment to, to say that to wrap our minds around the idea of your grace is beyond us. We're so used to a world that is based on what we can earn, what we can achieve, what we deserve, and yet your goodness, your grace, Your generosity towards us is not wrapped up in what we can do. It's wrapped up in who you've created us to be, which is sons and daughters. And so, Father, tonight, whether we resonate with the younger son, and it's been a long time since we've been in the church, we want to catch a revelation of your grace, a revelation of your goodness. And tonight, if we resonate with the oldest son, and we've been faithful, we've been diligent, we've been obedient, and yet there's something about grace that's been missing, we would love a fresh revelation of that tonight, Father. It's the Holy Spirit, this is where you come in. To come and do it, only you can do. That as we sing, as we pray, as we reflect, as we speak these grand words, that Holy Spirit, you would come and do something in us in the midst of this faith community. So Holy Spirit, in these moments, would you come and do what only you can do? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.